Hello. Welcome to the third episode of our RevDem podcast. Review of Democracy is a newly established life journal affiliated by the Democracy Institute by the CEO. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska, and it is my pleasure to introduce our today's guest, Daniel Steinmetz-Jenkins. Daniel is a faculty member in the History Department at Dartmouth College and the managing editor of Modern Intellectual History. Daniel is also one of the heads of uh, re-democratization section at the Democracy Institute. He's also an intellectual influencer active on Twitter. Hello, Daniel. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for accepting the invitation. And our today's discussion will be an attempt to diagnose the current state of liberalism after the turbulent era of Trump. Actually, the years of Trump's presidency proliferated in both outspoken critical voices about liberalism delivered by diverse conservatives, integrationists or identitarians, but also by scholars trying to reinvigorate liberalism. So let me ask you, what was that precisely liberalism became the enemy in the career of hope for many intellectuals during the Trump era? And another question, if it plays so many different roles in diverse spectacles, does it still have, have some core features? Well, that's a, a great question. And the reason I think there was an explosion of interest in liberalism obviously concerned um, the Donald Trump's election. And of course, many of the scholars who were, um, you know, focused on the crisis of liberalism literature that, that emerged after Trump's election had already been long interested in the history of liberalism, but it really provided, I think, a moment to kind of vent um, their concerns, I think, with liberal with, with contemporary liberalism. So you're right, there was a wide spectrum, um, both on the right, you mentioned integralist, you mentioned certain kind of non-liberal critics of liberalism, someone like a Patrick Deneen, for instance, um, who uh, was able to, and others like him, I think, use this moment as an opportunity to show the fundamental limitations of liberalism. So on his reading, it's ultimately um, individualistic and anti-communal, um, and, in, and, in, and as such shows why American society is decaying and breaking down. But then there are other people, I think, um, like Helena Rosenblatt, for instance, her book, The Lost History of Liberalism. You know, she's a, she is a liberal. And so um, I think she, in her book, she wanted to say, well, there's an alternative tradition of liberalism that's not focused on negative liberty or it's not like a Cold War version of liberalism, rather focus on certain characters and certain virtues. Um, and then other people, of course, would stress the connection between liberalism and the welfare state. And so really it was a kind of a proxy debate, I think, for um, getting out on the table what on all sides of the political spectrum, uh, what, what many saw as the wrong direction that liberalism had taken, even under the Obama administration. Um, um, and the second question, can you, can you, uh, mention yeah, that so uh, what are the core features of liberalism? How can we unpack them 
if there were so many critical voices from diverse angles? Right. So it seems to me that liberalism is it's it's very difficult to um, reduce it to one school of thought. There there's a tradition of liberalism that we would associate with negative liberty, which would involve just the basic rights that individuals have in civil society um, to act in certain ways as long as those actions don't violate the rights of others. Um, there's there's liberal there's a view of liberalism as a kind of uh, is entailing a kind of virtuous character. I, I mentioned Helena's book. There is another kind of liberalism that I mentioned, um, Cold War liberalism, which tries to reconcile um, classical liberal doctrines of human reason um, and science and truth with the realities of grand ideologies and of nuclear, the possibility of nuclear war. So I think that's really what, what kind of happened actually in 2016, which is now removed a, a few decades from the Cold War and with the rise of Trump, which liberalism is going to win and which one do we need? Um, and what does Trump's election tell us about the, 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 what, what his win exposed regarding the weaknesses of liberalism? Um, and so I think the way forward now, it's kind of a fight as to which liberalism will, um, which, which um, if you will, school of liberalism or emphasis within the liberal tradition will be the dominant one in the years to come. Yeah, you already mentioned that twice, this uh, special category of liberalism, so a post-Cold War one. And you also recently wrote together with Michael Brands a piece on that. And you mm -hmm. claim generally that after the great battle was over, the liberals felt intellectually homeless, let's say, because there was no event that they could, uh, that they could give them a meaning, no principles that they could drive domestic or foreign policies. So this was also visible in the uh, Obama memoirs as you reviewed them. So he was not so much concerned with the fulfillment of the awakened expectations that his campaign uh, raised, but only focused on moderate goals. So how could you explain this post-call liberalism based on those Obama's memoirs? Yeah. Yes, his, you know, A Promised Land is the title of his uh, his new memoir. There's another one that's supposed to follow. And this new memoir covers the first two years of his presidency. And I was intrigued by what, by the title of the book, which is interesting, Why Call Your Memoir A Promised Land. And of course, uh, this notion evokes for many a kind of civil religious tradition in the United States and refers back to some of the kind of language Obama used in his 2008 campaign that kind of galvanized the masses, you know, hope and change. And um, But you're right. Um, if you read the book, uh, Promised Land, and if you especially read The Audacity of Hope, it seems quite clear that with the Clinton administration in particular, um, and with the end of the Cold War, um, the great ideological divides um, were no longer um, um, strong enough to be the basis for politics. They had been defeated, and now you could overcome these traditional divisions between left and right and kind of establish a consensus politics, if you will. 
and Obama, I, I, who you know seems to be a, very much influenced by John Rawls in this notion of finding an overlapping consensus, was you know the embodiment I think of this kind of '90s optimism. Uh, and of course, this optimism is inseparable from a kind of Cold War triumphalism. And you know, in some ways, that um, form of liberalism, I think, is the one which is being promoted again today under Joe Biden. With you know, you know, Joe Biden is known as Moderate Joe, and the whole idea is to have reconciliation and unite the country. But you know, it seems to me what happened with Trump is there was a judgment on that very form of liberalism, um, and. The question is, is whether given the political economy which we have today, whether the conditions are in place for ideology to be um, marginalized to the point to where we can even have something like what Biden or what Obama aspired for. And if you don't think that, then you might go in a more welfarist liberalist tradition, which wants to really suggest that we have to um, focus um, much more um, than, than Obama did on um, a more radical social uh, or much more progressive social economic agenda to, to avoid these kinds of right-wing extremisms that we're, we're seeing today. So absolutely, I mean, um, I find it interesting that that after, with, with Trump's win, um, that the Biden kind of revival of Obamism would be the, the direction that many want to go. You could see this with how many cabinet members the Biden team, uh, uh, in terms of his picks, how many were former Obama cabinet members. But, you know, perhaps we, it's too early to know. I mean, perhaps Biden will be much more progressive and certain things that he seems to be suggesting and doing might indicate that than, than some of the, than the kind of moderation of that, that defined the Obama presidency. You mentioned the Rawlsian overlapping consensus, and it's a quite interesting notion uh, because on the one hand, we can criticize that because of uh, lack of, uh, I don't know, um, engaging more citizens perhaps. But on the other hand, isn't a promise, can it be a promise for um, defeating the social polarization that is currently in the American society so high that couldn't be more high than in previous years in the history? Um, there's a, you know, um, a German um, uh, legal theorist and political philosopher who was very much influenced by Carl Schmitt named Ernst Wolfgang Wolkenforde, who famously said that <clears throat> you know, there are certain preconditions um, that liberal democracy has to assume that in and of itself, it can't really justify. It has to look outside of itself. And of course, um, these external conditions have to do with a kind of culture, right? And I think in order for Obama, or excuse me, for something like Rawls consensus, overlapping consensus to even be a possibility, you have to have certain background conditions in place, namely certain liberal values that are widely shared across society and it's uh 
it's clearly the case that those aren't shared by many Americans. And um, so that's, that's, that's just the, that's the point. Um, if those conditions aren't in place and you're promoting a politics of moderation and a politics of consensus, well, who is that really for? Mm -hmm. It seems like others who are like-minded, right? And the question is, what is the strategy to get those people who are not into those values into the fold? Can you do that? Seems the strategy for some, and I think this is why so many are, so many certain people are very critical of the fascism analogy, which would suggest that we have to somehow re-educate or we have to somehow have some kind of civilization mission, or we have to somehow have some kind of anti-fascist movement to defeat these illiberal, um, you know, fascist citizens in the United States, right? Does it, um, but it doesn't seem, there are some who are a little more circumspect, but often the problem with this view is that it's, it's not circumspect enough uh, in terms of thinking about, well, what were the conditions within liberalism itself that are connected to um, this disillusionment that so many people have with liberalism? Um, um, so yeah, um, you know, Rawlsian overlapping consensus doctrines, you know, apply typically in this com in this country to uh, the requirements that a professor reads on a syllabus in terms of how students are engaged in treating each other in class. I don't know if there's much of a reality of it beyond that. <laughs> That's not an optimistic note, but would you agree that this fascism analogy that indeed appeared so many times in different books and articles in American publicists, uh, in American public sphere, uh, is somehow inherent to the uh, post-Cold War liberalism? Well, I don't know if I would want to blame it on liberalism in and of itself. I mean, I do think that there is long structural continuation between some of the sentiment that we're seeing today. Um, well, many people haven't seen it at this level. Um, somehow it's been um, encouraged, and I think Trump did a great deal to encourage it. So. It could be that the Cold War kept some of this at bay in that it it required alliances um, between groups who really didn't like each other, but had to because there was a greater enemy, which is, you know, communism or radicalism or something like that. So what maybe one way to think of it would be that um, now that we are, you know, no longer in this pressure cooker and there's kind of a detente, a relaxation of, in terms of foreign threats, we turn on ourselves and these fault lines that have been covered up um, are now exposed or re-exposed, creating, um, you know, domestic um, ideological kinds of incrementability. Um, and very well could be the case. For instance, um, I don't think it's by coincidence that um, some, a number of Catholics and conservative thinkers um, after the Cold War um, became strong critics of liberalism. Um, well, it's clear why, because during the Cold War, totalitarianism, communism was the great threat. And now that that has been um, put to the side, well, we go back to the threat that existed before that, which is liberalism, right? Um, 
so in some ways, the, the, the West winning the Cold War allowed for a return to some of the older fights that existed before the rise of these grand ideologies. That, by, by that I mean some of the 19th century um, conflicts between church and state and between um, uh, different groups um, that were forced to get along in the 1930s and 40s because of the greater threat. The question then would be, how do you, do you need an enemy, right? And it seems like there is a strand of thought that says that, like neoconservatism, like you need an enemy, a foreign enemy to rally the people um, and for solidarity. Is there a way beyond that? Because that's a pretty cynical view. I think we discussed this view in a piece I wrote with Michael Brennis. And, um, you know, uh, if you're coming, I think from the from the left, the 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 point would be to somehow um, overcome these divisions by looking at the socioeconomic um, uh, factors that that create them, and and that doesn't really seem to be the the emphasis doesn't seem to typically be on that, um, at least with the consensus approach, which is focusing on the politics of citizenship the politics of consensus, which usually involves a kind of political philosophy of representation and the party system functioning properly rather than, you know, making major kind of New Deal era um, uh, advances in terms of, of welfare. This uh, looking for enemies that you mentioned is very much present in many books published by liberals, actually. Uh, for example, when Ivan Krastev wrote a review about the newest book by Anne Applebaum, he also mentioned that she is seduced by this Cold War thinking very much. And perhaps the situation of the end of Cold War could be compared with current situation. The tr Trump is gone, since so are the tough times for democracy. And with Biden in office, there is no other cause for liberal intellectuals to fight for. And would you agree with this comparison? Well, no, because I do think they have a cause to fight for, at least from what I'm seeing. And, uh, you know, it's the war on terror being domesticated, um, coming home to the United States with the Capitol, storming of the Capitol on 1-6 and the reaction to it. Um, I do think there's a politics of fear that has emerged amongst, um, I, maybe you could describe it as the center of the Democratic Party. And I do think there is a push to um, ra radically, at least for some, radically, um, you know, hand, you know, approach this, this what they consider to be this, and it is extremism. So. I do think um, there is a new enemy, um, but at the same time, if you're liberal internationalists, there are enemies that are the ones that have been in place for for a while now with Russia and, you know, of course, with China. So it's almost a three front war at this point for um, liberals of this um, of this perspective, because there's a great anxiety about this kind of post-Trump right-wing 
terrorism, I think this is the way that we would describe it. And then there's great anxiety, you know, about China. And there's the continuing anxiety about Biden, um, excuse me, about Putin. So, you know, this kind of, I think my, my colleague Samuel Moy, I think kind of gets at some of his, his forthcoming work on forever war. When you have this kind of mentality, it does create a, um, it does create the, the mindset that enemies are forever on the horizon and must, there must be enough financially invested in, 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 in to, to properly deal with those, those, those enemies, which of course in turn, um, involves distributing money and in, in the direction more and more money in the direction of the military, which one could say, you know, could go for other purposes. Yeah, you are right. In this context, we should perhaps more appreciate any attempts to somehow reinvigorate liberalism, like, for example, Jan Werner Miller tries to do, because he uh, tries to turn to liberalism of fear offered by Harvard political theorist Judith Schlar, which mm -hmm. relies on welcoming civil ethics, making us more sympathetic to other people's harms. And apart from this proposal, do you think there are different strains of liberalism focusing more on solidarity rather than looking enemies? Absolutely, M most certainly. I mean, I mentioned one and I criticized it was the Rawlsian kind of notion of overlapping consensus, um, figuring out a kind of way of engaging with one another in, in the public sphere where we are able to put down what or put to the side what he describes as comprehensive doctrines and somehow reason with one another in such a way as we can arrive at reasonable agreements on you know policy and things of that nature there are different you know traditions in this country a, a big one has been the the you know the the tradition of american pragmatism um uh you know john dewey and um and others there's a neo-pragmatist kind of movement in the 80s with Richard Rorty and others uh, that, that, that also um, was relying on this tradition. You know, Haber, there's the Habermasians that are pretty much at this point, from what I can see, um, liberals um, uh, and, you know, high view of human reason and what it's able to accomplish in terms of, 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 of consensus, of, of achieving consensus. Um, you know, Jan Vermeuler's early work was on Carl Schmitt, and um, I think he's has written um, some new pieces of late on on militant democracy, and you know that tradition does seem to be um, appealing for a certain kind of liberal today who's very much concerned with domestic terror threats and the threat that these groups um, pose to liberal constitutional democracy. Um, and of course, with militant democracy, you can use illiberal means for liberal ends, right? And there's a, there's a, um, you know, that comes with risk. Um, and we saw some of those risks with uh, Patriot Act legislation, um, you know, risk of privacy, risk of uh, certain Long-standing liberal freedoms. So, but there are traditions, and you know, I'll, I'll mention Hel Helena Rosenblatt's book again, *The Lost History of Liberalism*, which 
focuses a fair bit on the, what is the liberal character, right? And um, um, as a kind of moral project, right? Um, and, and, you know, in, in her book and others, um, Anlene de Jin's book, Freedom and Unruly History, they both, and others as well, um, make a big deal of how alternative strands of liberalism, maybe the ones that dominated, um, were distorted by the Cold War version of liberalism that you mentioned, the kind of politics of fear. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe a lot of the content to discontent today that many have on many have towards liberalism, whether they are liberals but feel like the tradition is um, pro has, is problematic, or they're anti-liberals. Um, maybe what they're really um, criticizing ultimately is the version of liberalism that kind of was birthed in the Cold War, and then made into a triumphalist doctrine of end of history, um, third way consensus when all around them they see um, they're discontent with what they see around them and on many different levels, whether economics or socioeconomic or moral or whatever. Yeah, because we are running out of time, I would like to ask you one last question and it would sure. be how, what the promises can make now liberalism to American democracy? Well, um, I do think, you know, um, one, one of the cons one of the, the, the implications of what I'm suggesting would be for, um, liberals to, um, rediscover, um, again, I'm quoting, I've mentioned Helen's book a, a number of times, the lost history of liberalism. Hers is just one book. There are many, many others that can be, can be used, but to look, you know, so many of the critiques of liberalism by, by scholars on the left and on the right today are targeting, a, targeting specific ver versions of liberalism. A major one would be neoliberalism um, or Cold War liberalism for being too connected with security concerns. But there are others um, that are um, much more um, self-reflective when it comes to liberalism's um, exclusions when, regarding race and gender, um, focusing on traditions of liberalism that are very, uh, are, are, that are welfareist, um, focusing on traditions of liberalism that um, involve uh, concerns about community and um, liberalism as, as, a, as kind of a, a telling of kind of moral character. So I would suggest that, you know, I'm an intellectual, so I think I approach things that way. And that, that would be the way that I would think if you're, if someone concerned about, you know, the, the so-called crisis of liberalism, you know, looking at, at works such as these, I would be hesitant to, um, promote a view that all we need is a better system of political representation. Um, and all we need is um, to, to kind of uh, reform the party system. I think the only way that really works is if you have, um, you know, I think you would have to, that would, 
that that in my mind would be fine as long as it makes significant concessions to 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 the need for 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 labor parties within this kind of liberal parliamentary system. I say that because typically the political explanation um, is, does, says nothing about socioeconomic conditions. And maybe one way to reconcile the two would be the way to, to be to, to look at the way that that many liberals did that very thing after um, World War II, where people like Rim and our own, for instance, argued that um, uh, in order to make sure that ideology isn't attracted to by the working classes in particular, there has to be an acceptance um, of, of labor parties um, uh, so that working classes can plead their cause through um, uh, labor parties who work within a system of parliamentary liberal democracy. You know, that, 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 would, that would make me more comfortable um, but yeah, um, there are many different strands and, um, you know, there's a reason why so many people are interested in the thirties and forties right now, because they find what's, they find their, they trace their fears back to that moment. I mean, their contemporary fears, but also there might be some solutions. I think it's, it's a, it's not just it, the perils, but the promises. A lot of food for thought, or perhaps re-thought after this conversation. So thank you, Daniel, for this talk. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. For sure, we will meet again to talk sometime in the future. Absolutely. And if you would like to be updated with our podcasts and written content, follow the RevDem on Facebook or on Twitter. Subscribe also to the RevDem podcast on Spotify and enjoy more conversations with leading scholars. Thank you and until next time. Okay.